This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and this week Dan is off on holiday so I'm joined by Tom from AJ Bell. Hello. So this week we're going to be talking about why those on the state pension are getting a big pay rise next year and how to have tricky discussions about money with your partner. So Tom, everyone on the state pension is getting more money next year but Mm. how much more money and how is it calculated and why? Yeah, pensions joy for millions. Is the headline. Wow. Yeah, I know. So um, we've had confirmation of how much the state pension is going to go up by next year. So um, listeners probably know that the state pension now increases in line with the triple lock, which means it goes up by the highest of average earnings, uh, average prices, so CPI inflation, or 2.5% each year. Um, so the there are different measures of earnings and different measures of inflation that are used to decide which bit of the triple lock kicks in. So the government, for some reason, we don't actually know why, but for some reason it uses the earnings for the three months to July to pick the earnings oh, amount. they don't just take the average over the whole year? No, no, so it's the three months to July. Okay. And then they use the CPI inflation figure for September, again. Random. Don't know why. Okay. Got to pick sometime. Um, or 2.5%, so which is the, whichever is the highest of those three. So we've just had confirmation through that the CPI inflation figure for September was 1.7%, and the earnings to July figure was 3.9%. So oh, wow. I think that's that will be the second highest increase that we'll have seen in the state pension since the triple lock was introduced oh, back at the start. This is why we this. bring you on, facts like that. Oh, it's a good fact, that, isn't what it? What was the highest? Oh, it was actually 5.2% back in 2012-13, so that was a real bumpy year. That was a whopper year. Yeah, it was. So, great news for pensioners. The way that the, the state pension system works means that there will be people with different amounts of state pensions. So, I'll go through the basics to start with, and then we'll have a little look at why people won't get the exact amounts of state pension I'm about to talk through. Um, so, the old basic state pension, so that's the state pension that existed before for people who retired before April 2016, that's going to go up by £5.05 pence to £134.25. And then the new flat rate state pension, that was a state pension that was introduced in April 2016 for future retirees, that's going to go up by £6.60 per week um, to £175.20. I should say that's all per week figures. Um, Now, the way that the state pension system works and the way the reforms were introduced in 2016 means that there'll be lots of people with a mix of different types of state pensions, so they won't get those exact amounts. So firstly, people who retired under the old system may have also built up what's called what was called SERPs or after that S2P. So that was an earnings related part of the pension. So you had your basic pension and then you had an extra bit of pension that was that depended on how much you earned when you were working. Now that bit of the pension is different for everyone based on the earnings that they had and that goes up in line with CPI. So that's not linked to the triple lock. So people who built up state pension rights under the old system might see some of it going up by 3.9% and some of it going up by 1.7%. So just like everything, nothing's as simple as you would hope it would be. Um, There will also be people who uh, built up state pension rights under the old system who who are entitled to more than the flat rate amount. So they'll still get more than the flat rate amount, but they'll get the the £175.20, so that's how much they're guaranteed under under the flat rate system. And then anything extra that they're entitled to is called a protected payment, and that also only goes up in line with CPI. So one of the really frustrating things, really, about the state pension system, it's the bit that everybody needs and the bit that everybody uses, but it's also arguably the most 
complicated part of the system as well. So it's basically good news for people receiving the state pension. Some bits of it will go up by 3.9%. Some bits will still go up by consumer price index, so 1.7%. But generally, good news for pensioners. So it's not as simple as just saying, okay, I take this amount that I've got at the moment and automatically increase it by that 3.9% and and I'm good to go. So is there somewhere where people can kind of work out how much they're going to get? Yeah, yeah, there is. So it is incredibly complicated, but there's a useful tool that the government offers. So yeah, if you check, if you Google uh, check state pension, then there's a government website that you can use to figure out exactly what you're entitled to. So that makes it a little bit easier. And so does anything else increase um, at the same time? So the lifetime allowance is going up, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the lifetime allowance is actually a little bit simpler than the state pension, which to me, Thank seems, goodness. To, to me seems quite odd. The lifetime allowance generally can be quite complicated, but the idea that something that the state pension is more complicated than the lifetime allowance, which is for people who are wealthier, seems an odd way to have it, but there you are. Um, so the, since 2016, the lifetime allowance um, has been pegged to consumer prices index inflation. So since 2010, there have been various cuts to the lifetime allowance from 1.8 million back in 2010 down to 1 million in 2016. Government decided at that point to protect it against rising prices and in the same way as uh, the state pension triple lock inflation element uses the September inflation figure um, so does the lifetime allowance. So that figure will increase £18,000 from uh, £1.055 million to £1.073 million and anyone who's questioning my maths there it's the reason that it goes slightly higher never than you. Question <laughs> the reason it goes slightly higher is because it's rounded to the nearest hundred pounds so that's that's why the figure's not exact so generally some complexity but very good news for people who have state pension entitlements and very good news for people who are up close to the lifetime allowance entitlement as well nice so previously dan and i spoke to peter saddington who's a counselor at the relationship charity relate to ask him how we should all be talking to our partners about money and how to avoid arguing in the process. So let's listen to that interview now. So is money still the main thing that couples disagree over? Yeah, I I think it's one of the things that we see in the counselling room. And when Relate's done um, uh, every two years, we do uh, a questionnaire for people. And I think it's normally about 6,000 people that answer it. Um, money still remains one of the top things that causes aggravation um, and problems in relationships. It's the fact that people have different views about either how to spend money, save money, use money, or or just keep um, a different way of thinking about money so that they do it in secret. And so it creates a lot of tension in relationships and is the cause of a lot of arguments. On that point, is it mostly spending that people have arguments about rather than saving um i would have thought that that's you know you spent too much sort of thing rather than you haven't saved enough well they're both the same sides of the uh, of of one problem because you do get people coming saying but all the time you're saving you're saving for this you're saving for that and you're not letting us have any money to actually spend at the moment so i agree the most times it's about spending people are arguing saying you're spending too much or you're uh, we haven't got enough money for spending um, as we need but it, it's surprisingly quite frequent that people will come in and say actually the the arguments are about saving you what you want to keep um, saving more and more money but you know we might never need it you know if you're if you're saving money for a rainy day you're saving money for retirement um, that's great but actually we need money for now 
And so is there a kind of silver bullet? Is there a kind of easy step process that couples can go through where they can then reach money harmony between them? I'd like to say it was straightforward. It would be easier easy, if it was, wouldn't it? <laughs> surprisingly, it's not that straightforward. And I, I think that's because um, it, it's, the, it's the emotion that goes with it. So when people are arguing about money, it does become very emotive, very angry, very, uh, very hurt, um, almost interpreting that if you, if you can't agree with me about this, what seems such a very basic, simple thing to talk about would be their description. It's almost like you're, you've got a personal attack against them because you're not believing or responding in the way they want to. Almost so it gets framed, uh, if you really love me, you would allow me to spend this money or you would give me this money or you would allow me to do this. So money, it, um, money arguments are, are quite often the, the characteristic is it becomes very emotive, very angry, very hurt. But do you think so there isn't an easy cure? Do you think that people are happy to talk about money, even if it's just an argument? Or do you think um, there is a, there's a better way to approach the subject matter um, when you're not trying to have an argument? You're trying to just make a point and just be constantly discussing it. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that um, when we start talking about money within the counselling room is because they can't do it at home. It becomes too emotive at home. And so they save it almost to come to the counselling room. So the first thing is trying to establish how can we have a safe conversation about money without either or both of you getting too angry or too hurt and upset. And if we can develop a template, a way of doing that, that may be something that you can do when you go home rather than you've got to come and sit in a room with a, a stranger or the counsellor that you now know and do the same, same conversation. You can do it at home. So developing ways is one of the things that we're trying to do. I think the thing that uh, we would bring to it that they might not be thinking about it is how you were brought up about money. So what your values are about money, what you believe are the right ways of spending money is quite often the underlying pressure within the relationship. So if you've got a couple and one grew up in a family where um, they really they didn't do that much saving and they would spend when they felt comfortable with it and, you know, it wasn't an issue. And the other one grew up in a family where saving was what everybody had to do. And there was a lot of emphasis on you don't just spend money recklessly. It's seen as frittering the money away. Then the, the conversations about um, money start very quickly f falling into two camps, two polarised views. You've got to save or you've got to spend. So helping them to understand where they come from with money, what their relationship is um, with money or spending money or saving money is a good starting point. Um, but but you always have to come back to. So how can we have a conversation without it deteriorating or or becoming too emotional at, at the start? And so a focus on how you can have a safe conversation is the second part to it. And that's so interesting, I think, because people wouldn't necessarily think to talk about their parents or their family's attitude to money when they're talking about this as as a topic. Um, but we've talked a bit about kind of spending and saving. But what about debt? That feels like a much dicier yeah. area to discuss among couples. But it links into the same things because, um, you know, uh, so some of the other reasons why people might start talking about money is because uh, one came with debt into the relationship and didn't tell the other one. And so you have conversations, if I'd known that at the time, I might not have, um, you know, gone into this relationship or married you if I'd realised. So hiding 
hiding debt is quite a significant one, not being able to talk about money openly. And so therefore to talk about the fact that I've got money issues or money worries, or just don't know how to look after my money. And that again is a surprising thing when you've got adults sitting there and you realize one person holds the responsibility of the money in the relationship because the other one doesn't seem to be able to manage it, um, loses track of how much there is or spends without realizing haven't got enough money in or is running up debts all the time. So do you think having a joint bank account makes things worse or actually helps? Well, um, one of the, so going back to the silver bullet idea, the things that do work, um, one of the things I would encourage couples to do is actually sit down and um, when they're calm enough, when they're in a good enough frame of mind, and they might want to do it individually first and then bring it as a couple, is actually work out how much money you're bringing in. You know, so you're being totally honest with how much money you're bringing in and how much money um, goes out, what what you are responsible for and how much of that goes out. So getting an honest um, starting point and then sharing it as a couple so that so that we really know what's being talked about. And so are there particular red flags that you would come across or things that you think couples um, should definitely not do or should definitely know? So I know of um, a friends of mine where they don't know how much their partner earns or I know of other um, couples who would never have a joint account, a joint bank account in both of their names. Are there any like big absolute no-nos that you think are out there? Um, I think there are some differences. Uh, I think when working with couples, if they're not living together, I, I think some of the conversations about how they're going to manage their money would be different to if you're actually living together, sharing sharing the same space. Um, then I think I think you need to start um, considering a different way of approaching it, where you have shared responsibilities. But if you're still living totally apart, then I think I'm I'm not sure that I'd be. Um, encouraging them necessarily to think about a joint account. I'd still be saying keep your own separate monies until you get to a point where you're living together because it is about power. You know, whoever's got the money has got the power and control in the relationship. And so we're trying to find ways in which it can be shared. It's not one person having power over another. It, you're trying to get it so that there's always a sense of this is a couple relationship, there's a shared responsibility, but there's also a shared ownership of the money, shared opportunity to spend the money. So in, in your experience, do you think that the, the problems we're facing today are the same ones we've seen 10, 20 years ago? Or has there been sort of a, a shift in how people perhaps discuss money um, uh, and, and they're sort of their own responsibilities with having to to manage their finances. I, th I still think how you grew up in your family of origin, how you spent money or how money was managed still influences how we are. So you can have a young couple, you know, early 20s coming in with money problems. And the same, I would say that 20 years ago, seeing a young couple come in, they might still have the same way in which they're approaching it. The bits that have changed are... Um, the fact that you can do you can do your banking on the way to work, that you can see your money at a, at any time, you can buy something at a drop of a hat, and so some of the problems that start arising are you know people people become addicted to spending money, and it's a very easy thing to do to be. I don't know, sitting on the train and you've bought a load of things without having to go out with money to buy things and you've got to draw out money. And if, if you're drawing on money that you haven't got, you've got an early early indication of it. 
So I think that's something that's changed, that people can spend money and borrow money and use um, credit cards much more easily than they used to be able to. So the opportunities for debt are there much higher. And you mentioned there about young couples coming in to see you, which I think um, people might be maybe surprised that people in their early 20s are uh, kind of having these problems and seeking help. What's the, the average age of the people that you see that are having biggest money worries? Is it in the early years where they're, where they're first setting up that relationship or is it kind of all throughout life or maybe when they come to retire? You know, I've, I've seen um, couples, well, 16-year-olds coming in to relate, uh, wanting support, and I've seen 90-year-olds. So, I mean, it's the whole spectrum. But I, th- I think in their 40s is a common age to be finding yourself at Relate Store. That's so interesting. I suppose the bit that I haven't emphasised is, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the work is actually about how you communicate. And, and essentially, it comes down to misunderstanding because you're because you think the other person is going to just spend all the money away or is not taking responsibility, you're very quickly jumping to conclusions or responding in the same way that you've ever done without really hearing what the other person's got to say. Mm. So in, in working with communication, it is about making sure the, that the, each person takes time to listen to what the other person said before responding. Great. Thank you ever so much. Really, really useful. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening this week. It's been an absolute joy to sit in for Dan. Um, Remember that you can listen to us on the move using Spotify, the iPhone podcast app or Podbean and just search for Money and Markets. Thanks very much and we'll see you again next week. And next week we have a very exciting episode. We've got some people making their podcast debut. Oh really? Some people? very different to our usual guests. Okay. Just leave that hanging there. Wow. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.